2: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with BJ Holler, the author of Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monsters, Martians and the Weird in Flyover Country. BJ, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca.
2: So I'm hoping you can start by talking a little bit about how you got interested in searching for monsters and Martians and the weird.
1: You know, it makes for some interesting conversation at the faculty meeting. Let me tell you, Um, this isn't sort of the the (laughs) traditional topic, especially um, professors and folks like me generally kind of embark upon. Um, But, you know, I think I was kind of bitten by the same Bigfoot bug that so many of us have kind of um, taken an interest in over our lifetimes, you know, and not just Bigfoot, but just um, having been raised to kind of in the X-Files generation, you know, where there's all kinds of. Uh, things allegedly out there and and folks want to believe or not. And I guess for me, that was really the most interesting part of all of this. I'm not here to try to prove or disprove monsters or Martians or any of those things. I'm more interested in trying to figure out why people believe in them from a psychological standpoint, but also from a kind of a cultural uh, standpoint, economic standpoint, uh, trying to figure out basically um, what happens, especially in small towns when they embrace their strange.
2: Right. And so you picked the Midwest. I mean, you grew up in the Midwest, you teach in the Midwest. But can you talk a little bit about why also um, I'm a Midwesterner too. So why the Midwest for this and focusing on that?
1: Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm not sure if you feel this, but I've often felt that we're kind of... um... The Location that's often overlooked, you know, we they're called they call us flyover country for a reason, right? We're that big chunk in the middle that that allegedly people don't stop to, to take a look at, and that just felt so wrong to me, you know, having lived here, grown up here. I feel like there's such a robust culture here, um, and in particular related to storytelling, you know, and so, um. Again, most folks think of the Midwest, you think of Indy 500 and you think of cornfields and hot dish. And that's sort of the end of the culture, according to a lot of the, the people on the coast. But my my idea was take a little bit look of a look closer here and uh, to see all the other strange things we can we can offer.
2: Yes. Um I am in a very small Midwestern town teaching, as you know, and we have lots of ghost stories. Uh, You don't touch on the ghosts as much as the monsters and that kind of thing. But yes, it made me really happy to think about all the fun um, and fascinating things you could go and visit just within a, a day's drive from where I am.
1: Absolutely. And that's sort of the fun of this, too. You know, I mean, it's a great it's a great opportunity, um, a book writing a book to just go out and do the things you kind of always wanted to do. I've always I say this to my student, but it's true. Uh, If you go up to folks and you say, I'm working on a book. Oftentimes they'll let you do or see whatever you need to see. You know, I've been in the Chicago Field Museum and I told a, a curator I was working on a book about extinct birds. And the next thing I knew, I was literally holding the study skins of extinct birds, you know. And so this was just another variation of that, you know, just kind of asking folks to to trust me with their strange stories. And, and oftentimes that gave me a front row seat.
2: Right. So you took a year to sort of travel around and investigate what's going on in the Midwest, and you sort of divided your book up into sort of three parts. So the first part is monsters. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of those monsters. So the first one is the Beast of Bray Road. So can you talk a little bit about? that monster?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Well, the Beast of Bray Road sort of got its start in 1989. Uh, A woman named Lori Andreezy was driving home from work one night. Uh, She worked at a bar. And lo and behold, on the side of Bray Road near Elkhorn, Wisconsin, Uh, was this bipedal wolf-like creature, kind of like a a werewolf on two legs, so to speak, uh, running toward her, allegedly. And so she got out of there. um, But it became kind of a, a more common sighting over the years from 1990, 1991, 1992. Sightings kind of picked up for a little while. And there was a local reporter named Linda Godfrey, who I spent a lot of time with, actually, for this chapter. And, you know, she was a cartoonist for the local paper. She wrote occasional columns And the next thing she knew, she was writing columns about the Beast of Bray Road. And it sort of became what she's most known for now. She goes around the country, she tours, she's got several books on this topic. And it's just such a perfect example for me uh, of what a story can do for a person or can do for a town. You know, Uh, Linda now makes a good chunk of her career um, on, on creatures like the Beast of Bray Road. So that's a really fun story. I guess one of the interesting side notes is there was a animal control officer who had a... Um, a folder labeled werewolf in which he kept his his information on this so-called beast and so that really got things riled up just just putting werewolf on a manila folder was enough to kind of forever pit this beast of Bray Road with that reputation
2: and I thought um, Linda was really interesting right because like many of the other people in the books like she sort of stumbled into this and now has this sort of great adventure because, uh, right, because of what's going on. Some of these other stories have started even over a hundred years ago, but Linda um, was able to, and she, I think she said at some point she didn't really have a reputation that she needed to worry about. um, (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, um, but that, that, that allowed her to sort of go out there and do what she is doing with this beast.
1: That's exactly right, and you bring up a good point. I mean, one of the I guess major findings or reminders that I came across in writing this book was that people are putting themselves at at genuine risk when they when they talk on the record about strange phenomena. You know, when was the last time you went to a cocktail party and someone was like, you know, I saw Bigfoot last week? It's just not part of our conversation, generally speaking. If you if you do too much of that, people start asking, "Where's your tinfoil cap?" You know. Um, But what was really cool about this was I was able to earned the trust of a lot of folks who were willing to share their stories. And, and more often than not, these folks didn't say, I believe that what I saw was this. They were more like, look, this is what happened. I'm not saying what it was, but but this is my story. And so that kind of hesitancy for me only reaffirmed my my willingness to believe them.
2: Right. and It's really interesting, too, because as when we talk about some of these other stories um, that are a little older, they become passed down through the generations. Right. So you if you couldn't talk to the person who experienced it, you talk to their children in in many cases. And so that was really interesting, too, how that um, sort of the story is passed down and those experiences are passed down.
1: Absolutely. You know, that's a great observation. And, and one of the things related to that, too, is, you know, the, the, like a game of telephone, you know, as these stories get passed down from one generation to the next, these sort of evolve and shift and change. And that's part of the beauty of all of this, too. These stories aren't dead and, and written about in the newspaper and immutable. These stories are still moving. They're still evolving. And I think that's what keeps them fresh, that we, that we continue to contribute to the next version of it.
2: Right. And so the next story in your um, first chapter or first section is about Oscar the turtle. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about that and what's going on in like the middle of Indiana or in Midwest and Indiana.
1: Sure. This story takes place in Cherubusco, Indiana, about 20 miles from my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. So this was sort of the closest I came to a monster growing up. This was sort of our our regional story, so to speak. And it all began in March of 1949 when a farmer named Gail Harris um, was on a rooftop. This might have actually have been 48 uh, with a reverend. And he thought he saw this this big shape in the lake um next to the barn they were re-roofing the barn so they ran down they, they got in a big boat um, and they paddled out to this shape and gail was looking off one side of the boat and said oh i think i see it it's a huge turtle and the reverend was looking off the other side of the boat and said no it's over on this side it's on this side and of course the story is it was on both sides of this boat and this this turtle was allegedly the size of a vw beetle the size of a dining room table Four hundred pounds of neck and fury and anger and angst um, and for for much of nineteen forty nine the people of Cherubusco, Indiana, and beyond would just gather on the shores of Falk Lake two to three thousand people sometimes, and uh, l- regional and even national reporters came by with with uh, all kinds of photography equipment, hoping to capture a glimpse of this turtle. Um, spoiler alert, they didn't capture the turtle. But what the really cool side effect of all of this was that the story of Oscar continues to this day. And not only that, but every summer in July, Cherubusco, Indiana has something called Turtle Days Festival. Um, and over the years, this festival has raised an incredible amount of money. It pays for their parks. It does all kinds of great things for the town of Cherubusco, Indiana, all because of a turtle that may or may not have ever existed.
2: So one of the things I thought that was really interesting throughout the book, and you mentioned it in this chapter and talking about the turtle, is how much the town sort of embraced their monsters and their weird and how all air all over Churubusco there are turtles and they really embrace that theme. So can you talk a little bit about that as well and what you found with that?
1: You know, this was one of the best examples of that. There are a couple of towns, um, Cherubusco being one of them, that just really, as you said, embraced embraced their strange fully. Um, And it just has paid off so well for the town. And I guess by contrast, those towns that kind of try to shy away from it a little bit, uh, often they don't fare as well. Um, It becomes something scarier rather than something to be celebrated. Um, And so in the case of Cherubusco, sure, we talked about the Cherubusco's Turtle Days Festival. Uh, We talked about kind of the statues and all of that. But in 1949, the people who liked this story the most were the local business folks and the chamber of commerce people. Every diner in town was suddenly serving turtle soup, turtle burgers. If there was a way to put the word turtle before whatever food they were serving, they were going to do it. You know, There was money to be made, um, but not just money to be made. I think there was a major cultural impact too. And that's something uh, that I think is almost equally important. You know, Chair Busco is a dot on a map, um, at most. Um, but as one of the, uh, the local residents told me before, before the turtle, it wasn't even that, you know, Oscar, the turtle gave folks a reason to, to visit Cherubusco, the turtle capital of the country. Um, and so it was really cool to kind of witness the town kind of coming together around a turtle that again, it may not even have been, been real. And if it was real, probably dramatically exaggerated in terms of size.
2: Yes, it's very much their own Loch Ness Monster. Exactly. Um, which, And I love Nessie, so I was like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> so the next one I, is probably arguably one of the more um, famous, at least famous because it it ended up being on the big screen. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the Mothman and what you learned about the Mothman versus sort of what um, – Hollywood created or talked about with the
1: Mothman. Sure. And as you said, Mothman is, I think, the most well-known of all the case files I look at here. I almost hesitated to even go into this story at all because I I worried there wouldn't be anything new to find. Um, The Richard Gere movie, uh, Laura Linney, I think it came out, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so now. The Mothman prophecies really sort of brought Mothman back to popular culture in a way that That almost made it a little too popular for me. Uh, But the short version of this story is that in 1966, a pair of couples were out near a munitions plant in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh, They saw a giant humanoid in the sky, kind of long uh, wingspan of maybe six to eight feet, red eyes, um, looked sort of like a moth and was kind of chasing them uh, around town away from this munitions plant. Uh, Several more sightings continued over the next few years. And then later it kind of gained this reputation for uh, kind of seen into the future, offering a prophecy as the movie uh, claimed. And so there was a, a bridge that fell down not long after this. And so the idea was that the Mothman kind of served as a prophecy or something to forewarn people of the dangers out there. And so a very strange story. The reason I think I did include it was because there were a lot of other sightings of, of flying humanoids that was, were occurring uh, right around the time when I was writing this chapter in 2017. So uh, Chicago had something called the Chicago Phantom or the Chicago Owl Man. And indeed, folks were seeing a, a mothman-like creature. Some said it was a bit more insect-like flying off the Willis Tower and all sorts of things here in Chicago. So uh, it was really cool to kind of hear how this story had kind of morphed and changed and even changed geographies over time.
2: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, too, as to how um, this story showed that some of these sort of do change, but they return and they come back. And also looking at how it's very different. The actual sort of story, once you went digging into it, was quite different than what the sort of Hollywood version of the story. Right. And you Absolutely. found.
1: I'm mm-hmm. I I uh, oh, sorry.
2: No, I was going to say I thought that was really interesting.
1: Thank you. I mean, if there was anything new to bring to the table on this story, so to speak, it was related to a theory that was first originated back in maybe 66, 67, in which there was uh, a possibility that what people were seeing was actually a sandhill crane. Uh, This would explain sort of the glowing eyes that sometimes people see in the reflective eyes of cranes. The wingspan, a little too small for a sandhill crane for what folks said they were seeing, but it sort of fit the model. Uh, I think the big question for a lot of people, was simply, well, what would a sandhill crane be doing in Point Pleasant, West Virginia? Indeed, it was kind of off their migration pattern away. And so what I found, I was sort of shocked by this, and and it kind of goes back to my research on birding for a different book, was that when I started looking through old Christmas counts of birds that were sighted over the years, I came across a Christmas count from, I believe, the early 1940s uh, that indeed showed that someone on that day saw a sandhill crane right around Point Pleasant. So, does that mean that Mothman is a, is a sandhill crane? Not exactly, but it, it gave a little credence to that theory.
2: And so, so you have these sort of stories about these monsters, and then you move into the Martians and the UFOs. And I found uh, before we sort of talk about some of these specific stories. It's really interesting, um, sort of how you talk about the work of Susan Sontag and others, um, and sort of grounding these in the 50s and 60s, and sort of what was going on in the United States and US culture at that time. So can you talk a little bit more about those sort of Overarching ideas of why so many UFOs started showing up in the fifties
1: and sixties? Well, sure, it's a great it's a great way to put it. Um, I, I you know, where when we think about the golden age of UFOs, sometimes we forget that there's a larger context at work here. You know, and the fact that we were seeing so many UFOs in the fifties and sixties, according to some folks, have to do with our cultural anxieties kind of playing out in different ways. But we can't forget the socio political backdrop either, um, and in particular related to the Soviet Union um, and and the Cold War. Um, And just imagine living in a time where folks thought, you know, the end of the world could be just a button away every day. You know, that was a time of great anxiety for a lot of folks. And um, some have posited that that anxiety played out by way of these these UFO sightings and these Martians, you know, the what was kind of cool about a lot of the kind of pop culture movies of that era related to, to UFOs is that a lot of times people had to save themselves and so there was kind of an empowerment moment in some of the uh the UFO films of that era as well. so that's sort of the backdrop in which we find ourselves during this time
2: and so we start out you start out with um this pan these space pancakes right? that's <laughs> yes, okay. correct. And it's uh, the whole time because you were talking about waffles and um, my family and I lived in Norway last year. And so I kept um, thinking of how much better Norwegian waffles are than American pancakes.
1: (laughs) You get uh, me. You get me. Yes,
2: right. I was like, yes, yes, yes. So can you talk a little bit about this um, sort of first story and the space? pancakes in Wisconsin.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, of all the stories in this book, this might be the strangest of all. But I I like it because in some ways it feels sort of lighthearted. It's a little bit of a breather compared to some of the darker things in this book. Um, And the short version is in April of 1961, uh, a plumber named Joe Simonton was washing his dishes around 11 a.m., looked outside his window in Eagle River, Wisconsin, and saw what he believed to be a UFO landing in his backyard, and outwalked a couple of uh, extraterrestrials uh, who happened to look like, and I quote, Italians. I'm not quite sure what to make of that description, but but Italian-looking people, according to Joe, and the apparently uh, gesture that they needed to, some water. And so Joe, being a good Midwesterner, took their vessel, filled it with water, and in exchange, the extraterrestrials uh, handed him a few space pancakes. And so these were kind of small, cookie-like, pancake-like, Um, pieces of food, and he proceeded to do what anyone would do in the situation, I suppose, which was he ate one of them. He didn't like the taste very much. And then the story gets stranger because the um, Air Force comes in. They take the remaining cakes. They send them off to the Food and Drug Administration for testing. And in what was probably my greatest find of the whole book, the best line that I came across in any of the research was that after the testing, the FDA ruled that these pancakes were in fact of, I quote, terrestrial origin so these pancakes were probably made by material right here on earth but of course the critics say that just means that the aliens were locally sourcing their food and why would they bring food from their home planet when they could just get it right here on earth so you know it raises a good point and it kind of makes for a good story
2: right and it's super interesting um throughout these sort of ufo chapters you bring in all the um sort of UFOologists and the ways in which our government has or has not sort of supported this investigation into um, the extraterrestrial or into sort of these UFOs. So I thought that was really interesting too. In this chapter, um, they didn't sort of, there was one group that didn't really want to test um, as much as they wanted to prove the possibility that aliens were coming to our planet. They didn't want to test the pancakes. Um,
1: it's uh, it's very political. And certainly during that time, there were a lot of kind of um, forces at work, um, both in the government and beyond. And of course, one of the leading theories related to um, aerial phenomenon was that, of course, a lot of these unidentified flying objects were were terrestrial made themselves were made right here on Earth. Were part of a U.S. government or some other government and those sorts of things. Um, and indeed, the X planes that were created during this era often looked a lot like kind of the. Um, golden age of ufo there's there's plenty of youtube clips that will show these x planes at work um but but the problem with a lot of those is that they really never got takeoff you know they were kind of wobbling around four feet off the air and really struggled to uh to work and and fly in the way that a lot of these ufos were alleged to
2: right and poor Joe's life sort of changed forever because he reported that he had pancakes um <laughs> right like you know he just couldn't people would show up he you know his life sort of changed in a way that I don't think he expected it to just by matter fact like because he was reporting this this um,
1: encounter. Right. You know, and I think that's sort of a lesson that I still holds true to today. You know, a lot of folks, when I called them up, when I knocked on their door, at first, they were really hesitant to talk. And I think it's for the same reason Joe might have regretted it later. You know, it can hurt your reputation in a small town, especially. Um, but when I talked to other folks who knew Joe or knew of Joe or the situation, a lot of them said, you know, when you're from a small town, you don't open your mouth and start running your lips like this and left you unless you truly believe it, you know, and so Um, there were some theories that Joe was perhaps I quote "shack happy, you know, it'd been a long winter. Maybe he was just kind of seeing things after a while. Um, but the people who knew him said, look, he, he, he wasn't the kind of guy to make things up. And, um, one of my favorite moments about Joe is he, he published a little, um, pamphlet and in the pamphlet, he spends like a good couple paragraphs talking about it's time. I set the record straight. I really need folks to know what I saw this day. And the first thing I need to tell you all is that I am not a chicken farmer. I am a plumber. <laughs> Apparently, the newspaper had said he was a chicken farmer. And that was like the first order of business for him to clarify the matter. It had nothing to do with the aliens or the pancakes. He wanted to get his occupation correct. So kind of a kind of an interesting story there, too.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Well, that's really important, right? We want people to know what we do.
0: Exactly.
2: (laughs) Uh, The next one uh, has to do with Minot Air Force Base and the sighting there. And you talk a bit about that too, the role of sort of the Air Force Base's or military operations in many of these sightings. So can you talk a little bit about what happened? Sure.
1: Yeah, and this is perhaps one of the most confusing stories for me. I mean, as a person with very little understanding of uh, planes and the military, this was sort of just a mind-boggling one for me to wrap my head around. I had some good sources who helped me out. But what happened was in October of 1968, um, there were... Uh, There was a plane um, that was flying around the sky and while it was flying around, um, the radar scope picked up prints, pictures of an unidentified flying object that was flying around the plane at speeds that were just impossible, that no current technology could ever have managed. Um, And what makes this such a unique situation was the fact that there are these radar scope prints to prove it. Something was there. Something was flying about them at, at incredible speeds. Um, well beyond our capacity at the time. And so that sort of became the big question mark of this story. Not only were there a bunch of highly trained military officers in a plane and on the ground who who claimed to have seen this thing in the sky, but there's also physical proof on the radar scope prints that have never really been fully explained.
2: And so it just sort of still exists in this like unexplainable incident that people have experienced. Um, and And it's one of those things that we just don't know the answer for right it's um what was it project blue book was that Mm
1: -hmm. yeah project blue book was sort of the uh u.s government and air force in particular's attempt to kind of explain away all of these sightings and while they did explain away 90 plus percent of them they were often explained away as kind of swamp gas or or weather balloon or all the kind of conventional things we say uh, UFOs aren't. Um, but this is one that really, I think, has, has been a question mark for a lot of the major researchers. So there's a guy named Tom Tulian who spent a decade of his life going deep into this, interviewing everyone he could, studying the radar scope prints. And, it, and admittedly, it makes for a really strange story. There are all kinds of theories. Maybe there were actually two planes in the sky that night and they were Uh, testing radars. One would get off radar, then go back on radar. So it would give the impression that they were flying at these incredible speeds? That's just one of the theories. But even since publishing the book, I'd get emails and calls from folks who wanted to throw out their two cents. Uh, But I think think in truth, this one sort of remains a mystery.
2: Which is awesome. Yeah. And then I have to say, besides the one that took place, the ruins in Minnesota, um, then your next sort of case file, your last UFO one might be my favorite because it's super fascinating, right? So can you talk about Val Johnson and his experience um, with these sort of uh, UFO encounters, these alien encounters?
1: Sure. Well, one early August morning, midnight, 1am, 2am in 1979, there was a sheriff's deputy named Val Johnson, who was patrolling near Oslo, Minnesota, kind of the middle of nowhere, nothing's going on. He was just kind of driving around, killing time before his shift ended, and he saw this really strange light in the sky. And so he kept driving, and then suddenly this light essentially erupted and flew toward his car, uh, shattered the glass, or at least bent the glass uh, without breaking it, and then this ball of light kind of went inside the car, left a physical burn on his on his face, um, bent the antenna on the back of the squad car, and then left him unconscious on the side of the road. So he was found about, I think, 20, 30 minutes later, Uh, kind of hunkered over uh, the steering wheel, very shaken, not sure what was going on. Uh, And he called for backup and um, backup came. And again, this really strange experience. And what makes this a top 10 UFO sighting is the fact that there was so much tangible evidence left behind. You have the burn on Val's face. You've got the damage to the car. Um, And the strangest thing perhaps was that um, on his uh, wristwatch, there was something like 14 lost minutes that couldn't be explained. And, make it even stranger still the the clock on the car squad car dash also lost the same number of minutes so um you know if x-files taught us anything it's that you know lost time always means alien abduction um and of course val wouldn't go that far he's a very kind of guarded person and he often jokes you know the the answer to what that was is well above my pay grade i don't know what it was a lot of folks have said ball lightning but the reality is ball lightning is such a rare occurrence that um the fact that Project Blue Book used it to explain away a significant number of <laughs> UFOs seems sort of silly in itself.
2: No, and I found yes, I found as an X Files fan, right? I found that really fascinating. The 14 minutes on both the car and the watch, but it was interesting too that this was one of the one of these examples of the incidents where people also looked at like how these ball of lights sort of were in a corridor where there were other sightings that could have. Um, sort of been part of his story.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if if we're talking X-Files, there's sort of two kinds of, X, uh, two kinds of X-Files episodes. You've got the Monster of the Week and you've got the big conspiracy stuff, you know, and this feels like a Monster of the Week episode in a lot of ways, but it could actually be part of the conspiracy stuff. You know, there's a lot of activity around the Red River, around this area. Um, I've heard all kinds of rumors about what might be the cause of this. Um, military base is not too terribly far away. And a lot of times, military bases are near a lot of this strange aerial phenomenon. So Oakham's razor would say, well, perhaps they're experimenting with planes. Maybe they're just trying some new stuff out, Um, but it's hard to know, you know, but the fact that it might be wider than a single incident, certainly I think is of interest to a lot of folks.
2: Right. And so you move from sort of, here are these incidents that we, these sort of monsters that have existed to um, these UFOs. And then finally you get into sort of the weird and the first one is this, and I'm you I'm gonna let you pronounce the name of the sort of um, creature experience, but the first one sort of takes place again in Wisconsin. And so can you talk a little and it's over a hundred years that this has been going on. That's so. Right. can you talk about your first weird case?
1: I will indeed. It began in 1892 in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. It was known as the hodag. Um, A timber cruiser by the name of Gene Shepard sort of concocted this monster as a ruse to try to bring people to town. So the hodag it's sort of described in any number of ways. My best advice would be to Google it. You'll see all kinds of interpretations, but head of a lizard, um, feet of an ox, I think, a big old body as well. Larger than life, of course. Uh, much like in Cherubusco, if you go to Rhinelander today. You'll see hodags all over the place. You'll also see an enormous, I think, 30-foot hodag right outside the visitor center there. Um, But what was so cool about this story is that it was originally concocted as kind of a lumber tale, a lumber uh, bunkhouse tale, in fact, to kind of just get people thinking and curious about what might be roaming the woods and on the kind of frontier of Western Wisconsin. But as time went on, uh, a train began to go through Rhinelander, and and Gene Shepard realized how important it was that people got off the train. He thought if we could get people off this train, have them spend a couple hours in Rhinelander, maybe just maybe they'll stick around and help us build this town out. And indeed, he would get knocks on his door all the time from folks who were getting off the train to see this hodag, which he had allegedly captured and kept in his barn. Um, so he would have this whole signaling of his sons and he'd say oh i'd love to show you the hodag." and then his sons would kind of run to the back darkest part of the barn and begin making all kinds of noise and screeching and all of these things that a hodag might do and then gene would run back there himself and then what he would do just the trickster that he was always the showman he would Swap out the suit he was wearing for this shredded suit that he kept back there, and then he would run back to the the onlookers and say, "Oh, folks, I'm so sorry. The hodag is simply in no mood today to be seen. You can see by by the cuts on my suit. My my apologies, but please come back to Rhinelander anytime, and we'll try this again. Um, and it's really cool that this story continues to grow." Um, every year at the Oneida County Fair, in fact, there's a former mayor of Rhinelander named Jerry Scheidel, and he reenacts this whole scene again and again in this really beautiful kind of old white tent era of, uh, of telling yarns, uh, at the county fair. So it's a pretty cool story that just grows and grows and has a significant cultural and economic impact on the town.
2: Yes, I love the fact that this story, there's still someone sort of taking on this story and you can go and see and um want it to make you to return again and again to see the the uh, to see the weird.
1: Exactly.
2: So then you talk about um Project ELF. So this is your next sort of weird encounter. and just the whole idea of Project ELF t- was fascinating to me and the amount of money the government spent on it. Um and so can you talk a little bit about what Project ELF was? It was just continued about 15, 10, 15 years ago. So.
1: Correct, correct. It's a wild story. And again, this is less, this is kind of, I didn't even know where to put this story. I guess the weird was the best section for it because it, it certainly is a real thing. It happened. Um, it was a, a military program. Project Elf, ELF stands for extremely low frequency waves. And it kind of got it started around 1968. We were trying to find a one-way communication system to talk to our nuclear subs in the event of nuclear war. We wanted to make sure that we could somehow send the signal to our submarine fleet, uh, how to respond to any perceived threat. And we wanted to make sure we did it in a way that couldn't be picked up by our our enemies. And so the idea was that we would go to the tiny, tiny town of Clam Lake, Wisconsin, uh, and also set up another simulation or another um, antenna in Republic, Michigan. And these places would somehow... Talk to each other by way of this extremely low frequency waves that would then send any signals out to our sub. So imagine it kind of like a beeper of sorts. It was telling the sub um, not even what to do, but that they had to rise to the surface so they could then receive a message. So it was an incredibly costly project. I forget the percentage of Wisconsin land that would be taken up by this wire all over the place, Um, but it didn't even send the signal. That was the craziest part of all. It would just send a beep that would then tell the sub to, to take a message, you know. Um, and so it seemed like a very costly endeavor. Um, but it was, again, a, a very different time. And so while it finally closed down around 2004, that was after millions and millions of dollars uh, were spent on an attempt to communicate uh, to nuclear subs, especially during that fraught moment in our history.
2: Um, And what was really interesting about this, too, is there were the supporters, there were the protesters, there were a number of protesters, um, but there's also these stories about like people were worried that these frequencies would cause harm. And so you talked to um, some women who talked about their... um, was it their mothers being able or was it them, them going down to Florida mm-hmm. to get tests? Like, right. This, like you get a free trip to Florida. We're going to do <laughs> and to Chicago. We're going to do it for our country. And so can you talk a little bit about that as well? Cause I yeah. thought that was really fascinating.
1: Yeah. Thank you for reading so closely. That's exactly right. There <laughs> was one woman whose, whose mother was involved in the testing, I believe. Um, and the other who's, who did the testing herself. Um, and yeah, the, the, the Navy wanted to make sure that they could have all their talking points. Right. And to ensure that, Um, these low frequency waves weren't in fact having any kind of negative impact on people's health in, in Clam Lake, Wisconsin. According to the women I talked to, there was no problem. Um, these waves were not impacting health in any way. Um, but there was another concern too. There were so many different constituencies all concerned about this. The environmental folks were really worried about this. I mean, putting this much wire down really did a number on the environment or could have, you know? Uh, today, it's actually an interesting. Uh, elf isn't the problem in Clan Lake. It's elk. So just one letter differently, but they've reintroduced elk to the region now. And so that's sort of what they're known for today rather than uh, elf. They're all about the elk. So an interesting way for I think I think what I like about the story isn't just the military implications, not just the craziness that like the trigger finger for World War Three might have been in Clan Lake, Wisconsin, but that it involves so many humans with so many different positions on the matter. Um, tourism had a position, environmentalists had a position, politicians had a position, townsfolks, people who needed jobs had a position, the Navy had a position. And so getting all of these these people together and surrounding around this tiny, tiny town in the middle of, of nowhere, Wisconsin, I think is just a really cool way to think about our country and how we kind of connect with one another.
2: Right. And, and so your final sort of weird story is this story, and I grew up in Minnesota, so this one is close to home for me, is uh-huh. the Kensington runestones. And so can you talk a little bit about these runestones and sort of um, what the conspiracy is behind this or, or the, the um, conflicting stories are behind the runestones?
1: Sure. And this is one of the most controversial ones of all, you know, people feel very strongly one way or another on this particular one. Um, in 1899, uh, a farmer, uh, near Kensington, Minnesota named Olaf Ullman was digging around his farm one day and allegedly came across this rune stone. It was a big old stone. I forget the exact dimensions, but very hefty. And he kind of pulled it from the roots of this tree and on it was an inscription, um, a runic inscription that more or less said, you know, in 1362, uh, we were here. There was a bloody battle of some variety. Uh, people were killed. This kind of gives a very brief story, a glimpse of a, an alleged moment in history on that location in 1362. Now, the controversy is if this, in fact, is authentic, that would mean that there were Viking-like people, Norwegian-like explorers that were floating down the Minnesota River, you know, well over 100 years before Columbus ever came close or, or explorers ever came close to, to North America. And so it would sort of fundamentally change the way we think about American discovery uh, beyond, of course, the, the Native people who are already here. And so that's one version of the story, kind of rewriting history uh, and the formation of this country for white Europeans. And the other version is it must be a hoax. And then who was the hoaxer? And why did he do it? Or why did she do it? Um, and so kind of the mystery of trying to get to the bottom of that is kind of equally compelling for folks
2: right and it's really fascinating because when you think about it um and and you sort of talk about this is um uh, the the people behind this like who would do this like why would someone go to all this work and to all this effort to sort of bury this runestone um in this random field in minnesota for um someone to find right
1: right and i guess the one of the people who kind of began to get a lot of um uh... A lot of flack for potentially doing this was a guy named Ole Hagen, um, who just lived right up the road from me here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, actually. Um, he was a scholar. He knew uh, the languages that were Im- important to the runic runestone better than just about anyone. And there was a professor down in Madison who knew Ole Hagen, and he wrote all these letters uh, to the Minnesota Historical Society saying, I think this is our guy. We've got to trap him. We've got to question him. And a lot of this was based on the fact that Ole Hagen apparently had access to the one book at the Madison library that would have helped him allegedly inscribe what was on the rune stone. So it became this question of what's more likely that this guy, this 19th century fellow who had knowledge of these runes did the inscribing himself for reasons unknown or that it's authentic. And of course, there are plenty other options as well, but for this professor in Madison, it was one of those two. Um, and he really came down hard thinking Ole Hagen was, uh, was the one who had perpetuated this hoax But having had the chance to speak with Oli Hagen's granddaughter at length, she still lives nearby here. You know, she remained firm that her grandfather would never have done this, you know, and I really, I really believed her. The facts don't all point to him. Uh, Sort of the tragedy of the story is Oli Hagen spent a good chunk of his life trying to prove his innocence and he was getting very close. He told um, a newspaper editor here in town he was about to ready to release his findings and then sadly his house burned down and all of his papers and all of his life's work with it. And so the mystery, of course, remains to this day.
2: Yes, as as they all do. As they do. (laughs) So um, in doing this, uh, what kind of, as we're sort of um, wrapping up, talking about the book, what kinds of like takeaways did you get from this sort of year of exploring and um, finding sort of this strange in the Midwest? Are there other sort of takeaways that we haven't talked about that you really want to touch on?
1: Well, for me, it's, it's less about the monsters. It's not about the Martians. It's not about the weird stuff. It's about the people. And it's about how people, again, embrace or don't embrace strange things. For me, it was about learning to listen more than I talk. You know, I, I spent a lot of my life in front of a classroom, and I'm kind of always pontificating this, that, and the other. But there's such a pleasure in just listening to other people and, and kind of getting their stories and letting them be in control of their stories in that way. Uh, one other thing I think about a lot is that almost everything seems strange before it's identified, you know, so the first time folks were seeing giraffes, you know, and, and elephants and these incredible creatures, that was probably pretty strange for those folks as well. Um, when we think about Bigfoot. In fact, there was a creature known as Gigantopithecus, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago that in every way resembles Bigfoot, a Bigfoot like creature, you know, so we think, oh, Bigfoot, that's that's insane, you know, but in fact, creatures very similar to Bigfoot did, in fact, walk the earth, just not perhaps in the modern era. Um and so that's one of the takeaways, too. You know, we're pretty quick to write people off and to write off ideas that seem beyond our wheelhouse or beyond uh, a fundamental truth that we believe. But what happens when we just believe people? You know, what happens when we try to understand what conditions would we need to create for ourselves to believe something that seems impossible? You know, um, and I think that's that's true for all walks of life, not not just these subjects, but but when we talk about... Why you believe one newscaster or one news station over another, you know, being vigilant to the truth, being mindful of motive and and trying to figure out how we can kind of uh, feel and think for ourselves about what we, we want to believe based on fact.
2: Right. Um, so we've talked about this book for a while. Um, before we sort of wrap it up, I don't know if there's anything you're working on now. Um, I know this just came out, but if there's anything you're working on, something new that you're working on that you sort of want to promote or share or um anything related to this book.
1: Sure. Well, it's not related to this book. Um uh, one of my one of my things about writing is I kind of embody the liberal arts education. So I am always trying new subjects. I am always trying to write about something that scares me something keeps me up at night and so if you kind of look at my website and check out the books I've written previously they're really all over the place everything from civil rights to drownings to essay collections to uh monsters and myths and extinct birds and our relationship with our pets if you if there's a subject out there that that isn't even a little compelling i'm probably all over trying to to figure out the story so what i'm working on now is actually about a road trip my then 6-year-old son and i took about 2 summers ago on the last day of kindergarten, the final bell rang, and we hopped in the car and struck out on a 2,500-mile cross-country road trip to retrace the Oregon Trail. So our idea was to try to um, figure out what what it means to be an American today, and we kind of used the backdrop of that historical trail to figure out what it meant to be an American back then as well. So it was certainly just an incredible experience. We met so many strangers who were willing to help us out in a jam or make us think differently about our our country and really challenge us in important ways. And so that's the book I'm working on now. And hopefully we'll hear some good news soon.
2: Oh, wonderful. Well, BJ, it was really great to talk to you. Um, again, this is BJ Hollers, the author of Midwestern Strange, Hunting Monsters and Martians and the Weird in Flyover Country. And this has been for New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. Uh, BJ, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Rebecca. Have a good day.
2: You too.